evening. Good evening. How oh, you are out there? <laughs> Welcome to the Virginia Festival of the Book. I'm so glad to see you this evening. We're excited to offer this Engaging the Mind program on civil rights, women's rights, and human rights. I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Director of Alumni Education in the Office of Engagement here at the University, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Now, we have three wonderful faculty members from the University of Virginia. We have uh, Lori Belfour, who is with the Department of Politics. We have Tamika Brown-Nagan, professor in the law school. We have Denise uh, I'm sorry, Denise Walsh, professor in the Department of Politics, as well as in the studies of women and gender. Our three panelists right here, I've just named. Um, we also have a wonderful moderator with us tonight, Risa Golubov. Um, she's, in the, uh, she's a professor in the law school. Please help me welcome our, our four speakers, really, tonight, our moderator and our three panelists. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we have a wonderful program for you, and I'm just going to give some slightly longer introductions, but not too long, so we can get to our speakers, uh, of our speakers. So in the order in which they will speak, first we have Tamiko Brown-Nagan, uh, who is the Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of History here at the University of Virginia. And her book is called Courage to Dissent, Atlanta and the Long History of the Civil Rights Movement. Next to Tomiko uh, is Lori Balfour. She is uh, associate professor in the politics department here, and her book is called Democracy's Reconstruction, Thinking Politically with W.E.B. Du Bois, and she's also the author of The Evidence of Things Not Said, James Baldwin and the Promise of American Democracy. And last but not at all least uh, is Denise Walsh. She is uh, also in the politics department. She's an assistant professor there and also in uh, studies in women and gender here. And her book is entitled Women's Rights in Democratizing States, Just Debate and Gender Justice in the Public Sphere. Uh, so without further ado, I will turn it over to Tamiko Brown-Nagan and she will tell you about her book. Thank you very much. Thank you to uh, my colleague, Professor Golubov, for that introduction. And thank you to all of you for being here this evening. I'm very happy to be able to take uh, part of this uh, book festival panel. What I will do <coughs> in the minutes that I have uh, here is to explain the conceptual framework for my book, Courage to Dissent, and then uh, spend a few minutes drawing out some of the lessons that I believe can be taught uh, from the history that I discuss in uh, this book. Now, I am a legal historian, and uh, that is the uh, framework in which I discuss the civil rights movement. What I hope to do in this book is to um, expand how we think about the constitutional history of the civil rights movement by making the work of the U.S. Supreme Court and even the work of the legendary Thurgood Marshall, who of course famously litigated the Brown versus Board of Education case, a little less central to the stories that we tell about civil rights. I start with the question of what would the mid-20th century struggle for civil rights look like 
If we decenter the court, the work of uh, the justices in Washington, and also moved uh, Justice Marshall, lawyer Marshall, from the center of our stories and instead looked at the movement from the bottom up. I answer this question in my book, and what I say is that if we move that institution from the center and talk a little less about Justice Marshall, we can see unsung lawyers and activists, women and men, litigators and negotiators who also made contributions to the civil rights struggle. And an important point that I make is that sometimes these activists and lawyers had perspectives that were different from Justice Marshall's perspective. The question then becomes, well, who else was there? Uh, a lot of us, all that we know about uh, the civil rights struggle, at least on the legal side, has been shaped by uh, Justice Marshall, and of course he was very important. I certainly believe that, um, and uh, we should know a lot about him, but there are others out there. And what kinds of claims did these other people make? Well, in my book, I talk about three waves of dissenters from the racial status quo at three different historical moments. These dissenters all worked towards the same overarching goal, which was ending racial inequality, but they did have different priorities and tactics for achieving this goal. The first wave of dissenters whom I describe are called pragmatists. These are people who sought to challenge Jim Crow, but to do so without undermining the social and economic capital that African-Americans had been able to achieve under segregation. And when I say African-Americans, I mean the black middle class. So I'm talking about black teachers and principals, uh, and also about um, an African-American lawyer called A.T. Walden, who was the first, uh, one of the first African-American lawyers in the South. He's on the front uh, of my book, the front cover. He is a man who is little known today, and in some quarters he's actually held in some disregard, but he was an inspiration to a generation of uh, other African-American lawyers, including Vernon Jordan, uh, whom some of you may know of, who called Walden his inspiration. Above all else, pragmatists like Walden were interested in voting rights as the path to black power. Yet, as I mentioned, Walden was criticized by many, and why was that? He was called an Uncle Tom, an accommodationist, because he never fully embraced school desegregation, which, of course, was the primary strategy that Marshall embraced, uh, nor did he pursue housing desegregation with any vigor. Moreover, Walden and other pragmatists opposed the direct action tactics of the second wave of dissenters in my book. That second wave consists of what I called movement lawyers and demonstrators, whose rallying cry during the early 1960s was freedom now. They came into the scene, uh, most of you will probably know, during the sit-ins of 1960. The 60s were a period, as I understand it in my book, uh, an extraordinary time when the civil rights movement actually changed. It evolved from a movement that was mostly based in the courtroom to one that was based 
uh, in the streets where students primarily pursued equality through demonstrations in the streets. They actually challenged Marshall for leadership. And I'm going to quote John Lewis, now the congressman, uh, who during the 1960s was a leader of the student movement in Atlanta and in the nation. He said, we were all about a mass movement, an irresistible movement of the masses, not a handful of lawyers in a closed courtroom, but hundreds, thousands of everyday people taking their cause and belief to the streets. Now, what kind of tactics and priorities did the students have? Well, they desegregated public accommodations through demonstrations. They walked picket lines with union members. They led rent strikes. And as a general matter, engaged community members on their own terms. They also turned to lawyers as allies. I said uh, initially that Lewis and other students were critical of civil rights lawyers. They were impatient with Marshall and others who were not favorably disposed to direct action. But it turned out that the students uh, needed lawyers, uh, in part because their tactics, these sit-ins and these demonstrations, uh, landed them in jail often. And what can you turn to a lawyer for if not to spring you from jail? Uh, Proving what we all know, lawyers, you can't live with them, but you can't live without them. So the book then explores a number of uh, these lawyers, whom I call movement lawyers, that the students turn to to help them. One of those persons is Howard Moore, Jr., who was general counsel to the student movement and labored on behalf of the civil rights, the anti-poverty, and the peace movement. Moore, who was a native of Atlanta, was a beloved lawyer. He was uh, nicknamed the Lamb by the students because he was so warm and so protective of them. This is a lawyer who, when he joined the bar, the Georgia bar, in 1962, was only the 10th black lawyer in the entire state of Georgia. So he was quite a pioneer, and he was very brave. He worked along some, uh, alongside some of the most prominent activists of the 1960s, people like Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, Cleveland Sellers, uh, and I thought that I would stress here tonight Julian Bond, who of course is our own uh, colleague and who's well, very well known here at the University of Virginia. Professor Bond uh, actually gave my book its title, Cars to Descent. And let me explain a little bit about uh, the origins of the phrase as he used it. In 1966, Bond was due to be seated as a member of the Georgia House of Representatives, but his colleagues voted not to seat him. And the question was, well, what was the problem? It turned out that as SNCC's uh, communications director, Bond had endorsed um, the organization's statement calling the Vietnam War hypocritical. SNCC had labeled the war hypocritical because it said the U.S. government was not living up to its commitment uh, to democracy in the U.S. 
Bond's statement was met with some controversy. He was called unqualified for public office. Some said he had committed treason because of his critical statements. And he was asked to repudiate uh, his support for SNCC's anti-war position, including, by the way, by the entire black establishment in Atlanta. And I make that point to note that in coming out with this anti-war position, SNCC was actually on the cutting edge uh, of that movement. At the time, 1966, early 1966, a majority of Americans very much still supported the war. It was a year before Dr. King would speak out against the war, uh, and thus Bond was under intense pressure to stand down, but instead he stood pat. And he said, in part, I hope that throughout my life I shall always have the courage to dissent. He pushed forward and he prevailed, uh, in part due to the help of this lawyer, Howard Moore, who filed a lawsuit attacking Bond's expulsion from the legislature. Moore ultimately won his case in the Supreme Court in a case called Bond versus Floyd, which established that legislators have First Amendment rights to support unpopular causes. Now, I refer to that phrase, courage to dissent, in the title of my book because I do think it captures uh, so well the variety of activists whom I discuss, uh, including the third wave of dissenters in the book, uh, who are mostly women. The third wave were welfare rights activists, the poor themselves, who lodged searing critiques of economic and structural inequality in society. In my book, I explain how this third wave was personified by Ms. Ethel May Matthews, who's pictured on the lower uh, portion of the book's cover, who was the daughter of Alabama sharecroppers, who came to Atlanta in the 1950s penniless, uh, and who found her political voice as a head of this local organization, and ended up representing a group of protesters who not only uh, spoke out against racial inequality, uh, but also against uh, class-based inequality, who fought for uh, the rights of the poor. Matthews and her group made claims for an adequate income, affordable housing, integrated and adequate schools, as well as for a responsive political structure. Those are the three waves that I discuss in the book. Now I'll conclude with a few words about what I think the larger points are of this history, what we can gain from what I call constitutional history from the bottom up. The first point that I make, I hope to make, is that these unsung lawyers and activists show how dynamic and textured the legal side of the civil rights movement was. It was so much more than just a few marquee civil rights cases that we already know so much about, like Brown versus Board of Education. Moreover, it was so much more than Thurgood Marshall, the legendary civil rights lawyer, uh, even though he was, of course, so very important. There are many other lawyers whom I discuss in the book who offer models of activism that are important to be acquainted with. 
A second point that I make throughout the book is that activists and lawyers across the ideological spectrum always sought something different from or more complicated than integration, which of course is what we think about, we tend to think about as the definition of equality. While it turns out that many people had a much more sophisticated understanding of inequality uh, at that time. And finally, I make the point that a variety of people, a range of people, not only lawyers, actually were quite resourceful and entrepreneurial about the law. They made claims upon the Constitution, sought to give meaning to the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. These were organizers, demonstrators, uh, litigators. They were women. They were men. Uh, all working in concert with national organizations and leaders to try to make change. And the final point that I hope the book makes is that uh, during this transformative moment in our history, the second reconstruction, a vibrant democracy was most important. A democracy that was capable of hearing dissent from all quarters uh, was crucial to social change. Thank you. I know my mic is Good evening. I want to start by uh, thanking Althea and the Engaging the Mind program, and also Nancy Damon and the Virginia Festival of the Book. Uh, I'm thrilled to be part of this panel tonight and to be in this company. I also want to thank Risa Galibov for reading all three books and offering um, her own comments on them. I'd like to start by, by reading something that's not from my book or even from one of Du Bois's, W.B. Du Bois's many books, but from a speech that Martin Luther King delivered at a memorial for Du Bois at Carnegie Hall in February of 1968. Just weeks before his own assassination, King paid tribute to Du Bois, sketching a portrait of a scholar, organizer, and radical advocate of black power who embraced what King called humanity in all its hues. Most of all, King insisted, and here I quote, Dr. Du Bois was not only an intellectual giant exploring the frontiers of knowledge, he was in the first place a teacher. He would have wanted his life to teach us something about our tasks of emancipation. My book approaches Du Bois' political thought in the spirit of King's remarks. It asks what Du Bois can teach us about our tasks of emancipation today. Before I explain what I think that might mean, let me say a little bit about Du Bois himself. He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868, the year that the 14th Amendment was ratified and he died in Ghana in 1963 on the eve of the historic March on Washington. During the 95 years in between, Du Bois undertook the work of several lifetimes. As a scholar, he made a career of tearing down barriers. He was the first African American to earn a PhD from Harvard. He inaugurated the field of urban sociology with his book, The Philadelphia Negro. He radically revised prevailing accounts of Reconstruction history, most notably in his great 1935 book, Black Reconstruction. 
And he also um, contributed to the revision of the understanding of Africa's contributions to world history. As a writer, Du Bois similarly refused to be limited by established forms. He wrote widely in a variety of genres, including but not limited to poetry, novels, journalism, scholarly monographs, and autobiographies. And he experimented with these different forms precisely because he understood that even though ignorant, overcoming ignorance was crucial to ending injustice, facts alone were not enough. He needed to find ways to move people, to touch them, to affect them. As an activist, Du Bois's staggering list of achievements includes founding new roles, found, sorry, founding roles or leadership positions in the Niagara Movement, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the Council on African Affairs. He organized four Pan-African conferences, and he traveled tirelessly on behalf of full equality for all Americans, on behalf of decolonization, and at the end of his life especially, on behalf of peace. This summary is too partial and it's inadequate, but it offers a glimpse of the varied commitments that informed Du Bois's vision as a political thinker. What do I do as a political theorist trying to think about the living legacy of Du Bois's thought? In my book, I argue that he provides a theoretical angle of vision that discerns how past and present are intertwined in American cultural life, social structures, and political institutions. And he creates a language that enables his readers to see both our history and our present circumstances differently. Across the arc of his career, Du Bois strove to understand the fundamental uh, meanings of the basic terms of democratic life. What is equality? What is freedom? What is citizenship? But he did so always with the slave trade, racial slavery, and colonial conquest in view. In other words, they were not exceptional, they were not aberrations, but they were fundamentally to, fundamental to understanding Americans' democratic commitments. Although he appreciated the value of studying history for its own sake, Du Bois perceived the political importance of the ways in which historical stories are told. Consigning the past of slavery to oblivion, he argued, goes hand in hand with consigning the relatively powerless to a kind of civic death. So he committed himself to the presentation of a past that was not just known, but creatively reworked to sustain a critique of the present. My book, Democracy's Reconstruction, examines how his efforts to craft a usable past from unspeakable lost can inspire our efforts today. So what does this mean concretely? Political theorists are not so good at the concrete, but I'll take a stab. Today we inhabit what is often called a post-civil rights or even a post-racial era. This, I think, is a positive development insofar as it reflects an appreciation of the ways that the civil rights movement, as Professor Brown-Nagin um, indicated, fundamentally altered the social and political landscape. Jim Crow is dead. Most Americans embrace the principle of racial equality. The presidency of Barack Obama, the spread of expressions of regret from, for slavery, which began in Virginia, and the rush by figures on both the left and the right to claim the mantle of Martin Luther King indicate that we've moved well beyond a horizon about which Du Bois could only dream. 
But it is also clear that we inhabit a post-civil rights era in another way. Insofar as political life today is marked by a retreat from racial justice as a priority. There are many examples, uh, the tenuous survival of affirmative action and its disconnection from any account of the historical crimes um, of the past, or perhaps most clearly, um, Americans dwindling outrage over Hurricane Katrina and an unwillingness by most of us to see in the aftermath of the hurricane evidence of persistent linkages of race, poverty, and powerlessness. Now, Du Bois is especially helpful, I argue, because he inhabited another post-civil rights era. His early life coincided with the short interval between the passage of the 14th Amendment and the Supreme Court's admonition in 1883 that it was time, quote, for black citizens, oh, sorry, time for black citizens, quote, to cease to be the special favorite of the laws. Du Bois's inquiry into the undoing of the achievements of abolition and the brief flourishing of multiracial democracy in Reconstruction offers a useful vantage from which to consider our own quite different and yet not wholly unprecedented situation. Du Bois's scathing indictment of his contemporaries and his predecessors who rushed to locate slavery as the past, even as new forms of racial subjection were on the rise, warns against today's impulse to presume that slavery simply ended in 1865. It's not entirely surprising that recent efforts to connect contemporary policy questions to past wrongdoing have been criticized as untimely. In the mid-20th century, when civil rights activists were pressing their claims, the argument was often, not yet. Wait, be patient. Today, I think claims for redress encounter a different reply, a reply that Du Bois would have been familiar with by looking at the claims of the slaves um, in the aftermath of Reconstruction. Too late. And so part of what I think Du Bois helps us to think about is whether or not we have had a period in our history um, when claims for racial justice were neither not yet nor too late. The book um, asks how Du Bois' reflection on his own times then can illuminate ours. And I do so through the exploration of three interlocking themes. The first is an idea of a present past that Du Bois advances in the souls of black folk. I trace his efforts to bring to life the suppressed dimensions of American slavery and Reconstruction, and I look at the ways in which he, um, he reveals how both that history and the suppression of that history exert a living power. The second theme I, um, I discuss is his exploration of what I call black exemplarity. The point here is not to say that black citizens um, are treated uncritically in Du Bois's work, but he studies them centrally as representative American citizens and asks how we would understand American democracy if we looked at the doings, the contributions, the achievements, and the sufferings of African American men and women and take them to be representative rather than exceptional. The third theme is the global reach of Du Bois's political thought. For those of you who are familiar with his famous line, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, you may know that he goes on to talk about the ways in which the color line belts the world. The United States is never 
understandable solely in isolation. And Du Bois, as a student of the slave trade and of colonialism, understood that the realization of democracy in the United States required attention to the interconnection um, of U.S. with the broader world. King ended his remarks about Du Bois's career by saying that Du Bois's greatest virtue was, here I quote, his committed empathy with all the oppressed and his divine dissatisfaction with all forms of injustice. Committed empathy and divine dissatisfaction. These are the gifts of Du Bois's political thought. If we take them to heart, I think we need to be willing to engage more rigorously with our past and refuse premature declarations of a post-racial age. We cannot simply accept that yawning racial inequalities are inevitable or believe that we are somehow immune from the cumulative effects of unredressed crimes um, or the continuing devaluation of non-white lives. We need instead to attend to the different ways in which racialized forms of power still affect the concrete life experiences of all American citizens. In the words of Dr. King, let us be dissatisfied. Good evening. Uh, Thank you, Risa, for the introduction. That's wonderful company I am sharing stage with this evening. Thank you all for being here. And of course, many thanks to Althea and to the Virginia Festival of the Book. Uh, I want to start by telling you about the title that my book didn't get. Uh, I wanted this title, but I'm the author and not the director of marketing and sales. So the title that I wanted was, Is Democracy Bad for Women? Now, I wanted this title because I think it prompts people to ask, why would democracy be bad for women? Uh, and that is to say, most of us associate democracy with women's rights, democracy, equality, and empowerment. They just seem all to go together. And most of us think that equality and empowerment are a good thing. Uh, certainly, those of us who are feminists think it's a good thing. How many of you are feminists? Ah, right. How many of you know what feminism is? Yeah, oh good, okay, great. Well, a feminism, of course, is many things. This is a huge debate whenever I ask my students in women's studies, what is feminism, they all moan. Because they don't want to have to answer the question. But really, its core claim is that women should not be subordinate to men. So if you believe that women's subordination to men is wrong, then you are a feminist. Now, some, ah, more hands going up. This is good. Yes, I've already convinced you. Terrific. Uh, now, some feminists like me, and probably many of you, think that democracy is a good thing. So naturally, we would like them to go together, democracy and women's rights. And the question that I'm really asking in my book is, do these two things go together? So let me tell you a little bit about why this question arose in my mind. Uh, in 2000, I was at the United Nations during the Beijing Plus Five World Conference on Women. And at that conference, I saw a banner that read, democracy is not enough. We want gender justice. Now, the women who made this banner didn't seem to think that democracy and gender justice went together. 
And clearly, they had had enough. Now, if you look at countries that became democratic during the early 1990s, you can understand why they wrote this banner. Advances in women's rights during the 1990s in countries that became democratic were few and far between. Worse, in some of these countries, women's rights actually regressed. Why? Is democracy bad for women? Well, let's consider some of the countries that went democratic. For instance, in Central and Eastern Europe, these countries became democratic after the fall of the Soviet Union beginning in 1989. These countries did terrible on women's rights. Moreover, the countries in this region that did the worst on women's rights were the countries where democratization was the smoothest and the most successful, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Poland. And Poland is the most notorious of all among feminists. After the transition to democracy, the new government immediately cut back women's maternity leave and work benefits. It made divorce more difficult, and it declared the only reliable form of birth control available in the country, abortion, illegal. Unlike Eastern Europe, in most countries, women's rights advanced incrementally. In Chile, for example, women mobilized against the dictator Augusto Pinochet and demanded democracy, not only in the country, but also in the home. Ten years after the transition to democracy, Chile decided that they would guarantee gender equality. Fifteen years after the transition to democracy, Chile legalized, legalized divorce and passed meaningful legislation on violence against women. So in Latin America, some modest advances occurred that took a bit of time, and in Eastern Europe, things got worse. Now there is one region in the world where women's rights advanced dramatically during the 1990s. Yep, you guessed it, Africa. In Africa, a number of conflicts ended and new constitutions were written that immediately guaranteed gender equality. Political parties and governments immediately adopted quotas for women in legislatures. Feminist bureaucrats, or femocrats as they're known, moved into the government, and gender justice was on the public agenda. There was just one catch. The countries that passed the most sweeping reforms for women, they weren't democracies. So during the 1990s, we have authoritarian governments in Africa advancing women's rights at a breathtaking pace, while democracies in Latin America took years and Eastern Europe undermined women's rights. So did democratization and advances in women's rights go together anywhere? The answer is yes, and that place is South Africa. In 1998, just five years after Nelson Mandela became president of the country, the new government passed an impressive array of women's rights. It approved an equality clause in the new constitution. It passed a Labor Relations Act of 1995 that addressed women's issues. It legalized abortion in 1996. It improved women's employment conditions in 1997. It reformed alimony payments in 1998. It passed seminal violence against women legislation in 1998. It reformed customary marriage in 1998. And it passed the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act in 2000. 
South Africa is a stunning exception to patterns elsewhere and proves that countries that democratize can advance women's rights. But that South African success didn't last. Advances in women's rights stalled by 2000, and some of those rights are now being threatened. Why? My book explains why things went wrong in Poland, why women's rights lagged in Chile, and it also explains the rise and stall in women's rights in South Africa. I argue that the key to women's early success in South Africa was their ability to speak out and be heard in the leading institutions of the public sphere. Now, the public sphere is the space where people engage in debate over issues of common concern. In modern democracies, that place is often the media, but it's not just the media. People debate issues of common concern in the legislature, too, and many institutions like political parties, unions, non-governmental organizations such as Planned Parenthood or the NRA are important participants in the public sphere. In South Africa, women did not have much success gaining positions in the media or in shaping what stories the media told and which ones they ignored. But they did gain important positions and were able to speak out and shape the agenda of Parliament, of the African National Congress, which was the leading political party in the country, in powerful trade unions allied with the ANC, and in non-governmental organizations. So the question is, of course, how did they do it? Well, they created what I call counter-publics. They're groups of women who are mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. These women, they got together, they defined their common goals, they developed leadership skills, and they made demands. They created women's counter-publics in the legislature. They created women's counter-publics in the powerful trade unions. They created a women's organization in the most powerful political party in the country, and they also created hundreds and hundreds of women's organizations in civil society. Then, the women in these organizations worked together to shape the content of public debate by getting these institutions to promote women's rights. From 1994 to 1999 in South Africa, democracy worked the way we think it should. A diverse array of women from across races, classes, and political ideologies had access, voice, and the capacity for contestation in the leading institutions in the public sphere. I call that just debate. Uh, that's for reference, right, to that title that I didn't choose, right? Women's Rights in Democratizing States, Just Debate, and Gender Justice in the Public Sphere. What does this title mean? And is democracy bad for women? Well, first, no. Democracy is not bad for women, not when the quality of democracy is good, like it was for that short time in South Africa. But when debate conditions are not just, meaning the leading institutions in the public sphere exclude or marginalize women, then we're going to get Chile or Poland, few advances in women's rights. Now, of course, you realize that just debate is not the norm in many democracies, including ours. That means the banner that I saw at the UN conference was right. 
Democracy is not enough, and my book explains why. Gender justice requires just debate. Thank you. Thank you all for those wonderful presentations. I think you get a good flavor of uh, each of these three wonderful books. Uh, before we open it up to discussion, I thought I would just start us off with a little conversation and, and ask each of you a question. And I'll go in turn, since you just sat down. Um, so Professor Brown-Nagan, I, I thought I would start with you. The, the subtitle of your book is The Long History of the Civil Rights Movement, and I wonder if you could tell us what that means and why it's important to have a long history of the civil rights movement. Uh -huh. uh, that's a great question. The reference to the long, his uh, long history of the civil rights movement um, refers to uh, an article written by uh, Jackie Dowdhall, who's an historian, um, who emphasized that the civil rights movement uh, needs to take an account of uh, the history of a labor movement. So the period prior to Brown versus Board of Education, the usual uh, point that people think about as beginning the civil rights movement. She argued that that is not the beginning of the civil rights movement. A lot was coming, be, was occurring, excuse me, before that period in 1954 uh, that is uh, typically viewed as so important. Uh, she was interested in labor. Uh, moreover, the argument is that the period after the passage of the civil rights uh, legislation of the 1960s, so the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 needs to be emphasized as well. So my book uh, doesn't begin with Brown and it doesn't end with the mid-1960s. It covers the period before. Uh, 1954, and it goes to about 1980. Uh, the value of that, I hope, is that one can uh, really begin to appreciate why the legislation that we celebrate as being so transformative in our history, which it was for some of us, uh, but not for many, actually was disappointing uh, to, to many and did not achieve all of its goals. Uh, so formal equality was not enough to really change the conditions in which a lot of people, a lot of African Americans, a lot of women, a lot of poor people lived in this country. Uh, and following uh, some of the cases that I talk about uh, past uh, the point where the court intervened and declared that there was equality, really looking at it uh, up to, in this case, the 1980s, really gives you a flavor uh, for that texture, that richness, for the successes as well as the failures of the civil rights movement. Democracy is not enough and formal equality is not. <laughs> we're sensing some themes uh, of not enoughness. Speaking of not enoughness, uh, my question uh, for you, Professor Balfour, in chapter two of your book, um, you build on Du Bois's history of slavery and reconstruction to make a case for reparations. Uh, and I wonder if you can explain what reparations are, what you mean by them, and how uh, Du Bois's work supports it in your view. Um, I should say, first of all, I do not, in chapter two of my book, make a case that Du Bois makes a case for reparations. Um, but what I look at is the way in which he looked to what he called the splendid failure of Reconstruction 
the moment when in the United States there was a possibility of genuinely creating a multiracial democracy, a moment which was in which um, women played a role, um, poor whites in the South saw their own circumstances included, for instance, with the spread of, of, um, of pub free public uh, primary education. Du Bois saw this as a, as a moment when had the United States owned up to the legacies of slavery and really tried to think about what would it take to create a sustained, free, independent citizenry. Um, Patricia Williams, who's a law professor, has a, a very powerful term where she talks about the unowning of slaves rather than the emancipation. Um, du Bois also uh, called our attention to the fundamental role of the slaves um, in the course of the Civil War. They did not simply have freedom given to them. Uh, for Du Bois, by the mid-1930s, he makes the case that it was really the fugitives who turned the tide of the Civil War. And that Lincoln recognized uh, the centrality of the slaves when he, when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. So what does this have to do with reparations? I should say, first of all, when I talk about reparations, I'm not talking about per capita checks um, sent to individuals on the model, for instance, of um, the reparations that were given to Japanese Americans who were interned uh, during the Second World War. But reparations as a kind of a language or a framework for incorporating a recognition of the importance of, of the past, of the ways in which the legacies of slavery and segregation live on in our thinking about political priorities in the present. So if we're thinking about just allocation of resources, this is central right now. If you listen to the news from DC today, what gets cut, what, what survives? Reparations, I think, provides a way of thinking about how we understand what we owe and to whom, um, not simply on the basis of what's happening today, but also on the basis of century, centuries of policies. Um, that have helped to create the really um, quite extraordinary gaps and inequalities among American citizens. Thank you. Uh, Professor Walsh, one of the key themes of your book is, uh, as, as you were just saying, that women need greater access to institutions mm -hmm. like the legislature, political parties, the media. Um, and in this country, quotas have not been a, a particularly popular thing, nor are they constitutional. I just taught this today uh, in my constitutional law class. Um, uh, but in South Africa, which is your main example of where things actually worked for women, at least for some period of time, um, they did use quotas. And, and I wonder, you know, how important are quotas for advancing women's rights? Right. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I think quotas are really, really important, but I'm going to go back to our refrain now of not enough, which I guess I started by saying that access is one part of the picture, but that we also need, uh, or women also need voice and the capacity for contestation. And I think the South African case really illustrates this brilliantly. Now, po uh, quotas right now are extraordinarily popular in most uh, countries in the world, and some of them are even mandated in constitutions, particularly in Africa. So there's over 100 countries in the world right now that have quotas for women in their national legislatures, and I think the percentage uh, across the world is approximately 19% of women in legislatures. The U.S. is something like 17%. Uh, South Africa is number three globally behind Sweden and Rwanda, and it has almost 50% women in its legislature right now. 
1994, when the country transitioned to democracy, the dominant party in the country, the African National Congress, adopted a 30% quota for women. And because that party was so extraordinarily popular, 111 women out of a legislature of 400 entered parliament in 1994. So there were a lot of women suddenly in the halls of parliament. And those numbers really did make some differences. So you start to see um, women, for instance, commandeering men's bathrooms because there just aren't enough of them, right? And uh, so there's some, some things like that, but what they really realize is that even though they have a lot of numbers with them, that there's still a lot of problems. So there's a lot of informal obstacles, right, uh, to women's participation in the legislature. So um, some men do things like they refuse to call on women. Some men block their entryway into meeting rooms. And these 111 women look at each other and they recognize that they're being excluded and they decide to organize. This is those counter publics that I was talking about earlier. And because there's so many women, they can organize many of these counter publics. So one addresses the kind of institutional problems that they have in the legislature. So they get the calendar changed so it fits with the school calendar. They make sure that all the parliamentary sessions end by 6 o'clock so people can go home to their families. Then there's another counter public that gets international money to train women and give them skills. And then there's another one that just gets involved in building other counter publics within the institution. And because there's enough women to actually sit on some of these things, they really make tremendous progress and get things done. So that's really exciting. I think that's very demonstrative of what quotas can help to achieve. At the same time, uh, numbers of women have increased in the parliament and their ability to speak out and challenge the status quo since 1998 has actually declined, which I think very clearly demonstrates that numbers aren't enough. And the story there is basically that the, the, the party that adopted the quota, the ANC, has centralized all of its power in governing elites and is punishing any kind of independent-minded politicians. And of course, that often includes women and feminists who are asking unpleasant questions and so these women get fired, they get moved to uh, less public positions, uh, some of them get harassing phone calls, death threats, one woman was stalked, another her car was dismantled. So they begin to resign and you get this kind of silence. So even though there's nearly 50% women in the parliament today, there's very little activism actually in terms of women's rights. I'm going to probably jump in again, but I, I would love to open it up for questions. The lights are very bright, um, so I will do my best to see, but put your hand up way high so that I can see. Teresa, if you can also try to repeat the Absolutely. I saw a hand over here. Yes, yes sir. Right. Uh, I would ask uh, Dr. Wall to uh, predict the future. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Certainly been on my mind a lot. In fact, uh, I repeat it first. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, so the question was, no, that's okay. The, the question, I think most of you heard it, but the question was to predict the future and what it will take uh, for um, uh, women to get rights in uh, Muslim countries. 
So um, I, I don't study the Middle East. I don't speak Arabic. I haven't been reading a lot of the Arabic press, obviously, but I'm reading everything that I can in the news lately and talking to a lot of friends, wondering how I've discovered this two or three hours every day to you know, watch Al Jazeera and check the BBC and every possible news source to find out what's going on. And it seems to me, first of all, it's questionable at this point whether we're really going to get de much democratization in some of the countries that are experiencing upheaval. Of course, Egypt, I think, primary in many people's minds. But assuming that we did get some democratization in Egypt, what are the chances for advancing uh, women's rights? So first of all, I would say that there have been real changes already. They're not legal changes. They're changes in sort of attitudes and the breaking of barriers. So one of the things that was very striking, for instance, is there was a moment in Tahrir Square where it was a time for prayer, and women and men started to segregate like they would usually do, and then they realized it just wasn't feasible, and everyone kind of said, well, who cares? It doesn't matter anyway. And they all just prayed together. This is a remarkable kind of moment, right, that will stick with people for a long time. Um, on the other hand, the question really is, what, will we get any kind of translation? Of sort of these, kind of these cultural moments are really important, but into uh, legal change, and what, what kind of uh, things does that require? And I think what, what really what we need to see is women participating very much in the opposition movement right now. Um, a key thing that's happened that's actually kind of positive is, is that they were excluded. So once you get that initial exclusion, women kind of look around and they say, oh, you know, oh, we are women and we are being excluded. So that's actually a, a key point. Uh, so then if they really do have the kind of resources in terms of leadership, um, material, you know, just money to talk to each other, if they have sufficient networks, they can organize and begin to demand inclusion. And I think that fits very nicely with the kinds of demands that we're seeing in the Middle East right now about, you know, liberty and civil and political rights. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm not very, I have to say, I'm not very optimistic at, at the moment that we're going to see that kind of positive change. I was really excited about the Women's March on International Women's Day. I actually had a student who's from UVA. She graduated a couple years ago, and she was there during the demonstration and sent me an email. She was just appalled. So, uh, you know, several hundred women are organizing, at demanding women's rights, and just celebrating women and their role in the revolution. And uh, men were basically started to harass them uh, verbally, and then were tearing the signs from their hands. And then several w women were beaten, and women, uh, you know, fled. And I have seen, um, and she didn't report, any kinds of response from the opposition movement, which would actually be key, right? That they say, this is absolutely not acceptable, and the opposition movement is going to put women in the forefront, and we're going to you know, really care about women's rights. It's a great moment. That should have happened, and it didn't, which suggests that women just don't have the leadership and resource and networking skills available at the moment. So the longer we can wait for elections, the more time they'll have to do that kind of organizing, and hopefully uh, something positive could, could happen. But that doesn't, it doesn't look like we're going to have much time for the elections. So uh, like I said, I'm not particularly optimistic at the moment. Other questions? Back there, yep. So the question is why um, Professor Wallace doesn't talk about the Western European countries 
in Scandinavia, places like that where there's yeah. vibrant democracy? Well, there's tremendous and wonderful research on those countries, and they're um, really the ones that everyone turns to. They're the exemplary countries in terms of advances in women's rights. My focus was on women's rights in democratizing states because during the moment of transition to democracy, the public sphere tends to be dynamic. And so if you want to be able to measure changes in uh, what's happening in the public sphere, that's a moment where you can actually see them happening and to what extent. It's much harder to see those changes on the ground uh, when you have a stable, established democracy. It's in uh, no way to suggest that uh, democracies in, uh, in Northern Europe haven't done exceptionally well in terms of women's rights. They have. So I have a question for uh, Professor Reinagan and Professor Balfour. Uh, although um, Professor Walsh's book is primarily about gender, your books are about race primarily, but gender really comes into them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how gender figures. You've talked a little bit about it in, mm -hmm. in your opening statements. But if you could each talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go first? Either way. <laughs> well, um, I'll say a little bit more. Um, the book is primarily about uh, the, the I organize it under the rubric of civil rights, but women's rights is really important to the perspective that I bring to the book. And I mentioned that the third group of uh, dissenters, as I style them, that I talk about in my book. Um, are primarily women. They are poor women uh, who challenge the civil rights establishment uh, in the wake of the passage of the monumental uh, legislation that I talked about uh, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. And they essentially say, but it's not enough. Uh, look at us. We're still on the outside of politics. We're still on the outside uh, of uh, the city structure. This is at a time when uh, Atlanta, like so many other uh, cities in the 1970s, it has become a majority black city. There are uh, blacks who are on the school board, uh, who are in the mayor's office, and uh, these women who are poor, they are uh, on public assistance, many of them. Um, they're very disappointed with what they've been able to achieve uh, from the civil rights movement, um, and they say so. Um, they are great dissenters. Um, uh, they say that uh, they still need um, they still need money. Uh, primarily, um, what Jim Crow means in their lives is that they experienced racialized poverty. Um, they experienced feminized poverty. Uh, these are women who. Uh, many of them don't have uh, spouses, and they're trying to make it on their own. So talking about women in my work is a way of talking about poverty. It's a way of talking about children. Um, it's a way of bringing all of these other isms uh, that are a part of racism and are part of uh, Jim Crow's legacy to the fore um, and really emphasizing how they remain even after formal equality has been achieved, even after access to the ballot has been achieved. So it's not enough to simply have um, access, as Professor Walsh said. It's the quality of participation that matters. So even if um, there are same-race representatives in office, even if there are women in office, it doesn't mean um, that the folks who are um, in need will actually achieve 
what they need in terms of uh, you know, material um, uh, needs, in terms of housing. These women are interested in integrated education. Um, and so really, uh, in my work, emphasizing the experience of women is a way of talking about uh, how the successes of the civil rights movement uh, look very different if one looks at the movement and looks at race from a gender perspective. Well, I think my work actually follows from that very, very closely in, in that one of the things that I think we take from reading Du Bois's work across his corpus, and Du Bois's own record with regard to the status of women was very uneven. Hmm. But at his most democratic, Du Bois understands very clearly that uh, we cannot understand slavery, we cannot understand um, the democratic moment of reconstruction, and we cannot understand the future unless we think about race and gender and class together. Um, and in 1920, he published an essay called The Damnation of Women, which, um, among other things, makes a very powerful case. He looks at the situation of African-American women in the early 20th century and across their, their broader history, and not only talks about the ways in which they've been central to the making of American history. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, many of Du Bois's contemporaries. Now, I will again say that there's some of his contemporaries he did not give credit to, and, that, you know, and, and for that he should be rightly criticized. But part of what he argues there is that if we want to think about what it means to make a meaningful life and to be a democratic citizen, it means you need to have the wherewithal to support yourself. It means if you're a woman, not that you should live the life of a middle-class white woman and be put on a pedestal and live um, under those circumstances, but that your work as a worker, he recognized black women as workers should be valued. And beyond this, I think the most radical claim of that essay is that if you choose to be a parent um, and, and want to be a parent, you should not have to um, be denied that because of your race, because of your poverty, or because there isn't a man in the household. This is a moment that is exceptional in many ways in Du Bois's larger arguments, but I think this is a critical issue Du Bois is helping us to see, and I think we need to draw on this idea, that um, particularly in the aftermath of welfare reform, that um, if we understand citizenship broadly, that we need to think about all of the ways in which we formulate a meaningful life, we um, express ourselves as individuals, and that we need to honor um, women's work, and black women's work in particular, we need to honor parenthood in whatever form. Um, and we need to provide the wherewithal so that people can develop their lives along, along those lines. So in this, in this essay, I think he helps to see some of the arguments that then get made by the National Welfare Rights Organization that have been made more recently by critical race theorists who have been trying to put um, the questions that Professor Brown-Nagan is raising back into our discussions about citizenship today. Other questions? Oh, hi, Rihanna. So you've mentioned both affirmative action and, um, oh, and reparations. 
So the question, just to repeat, just in a short version, is the link between reparations and affirmative action, especially now in a period when uh, they're under attack? Well, there was a, a period in the early, late, late 19th, late 20th, early 21st century, and Professors Galiboff and Brown-Nagin can, can speak to this um, probably even more extensively than I can, when there was a resurgence of interest in the idea of reparations. And there were many causes of this, but one of, this, one of the causes was a sense that traditional civil rights remedies were under attack. And the colorblindness as a, as a method of reasoning that equates, on the one hand, slavery and Jim Crow, and on the other hand, efforts to, um, to provide some kind of redress or correction for the effects of slavery and Jim Crow, um, both as forms of discrimination. Um, and so reparations, um, which is, is an idea that's been around since the 19th century. It's not a, a new idea. It was proposed during the slave period, after the slave period, and at various points across the 20th century as well, um, became a way of thinking about how can we restructure uh, the United States so that, um, so that the there's access for, for all Americans. And the idea, I mean, one of the important points is that, um, that when Du Bois talks about reconstruction and he talks about uh, the, the aid that was available to the freedmen and women, part of the point that he emphasizes was that this was not something that was just a special, a benefit to, to one community, but it benefited the United States, you know, it benefited um, American democracy more generally. So part of the idea has been to think about reparations as an alternative to affirmative action because affirmative action now can only be defended on grounds of diversity, which itself is an anti-historical claim. Um, you have this funny sleight of hand where people are valued because they bring diversity to the table or to the classroom, but we don't talk about what it is that actually historically makes them, you know, what, they're bearers of what. Um, and so uh, when I talk about reparations as a language, um, I'm talking about specifically trying to connect um, challenges of the present to the history that got us here. And so I think affirmative action um, is, I, I should say both affirmative action and reparations are not meant to be panaceas. I mean, neither of them is the silver bullet that's going to bring racial justice. But I do think connecting the two um, and, and also disallowing the argument that somehow that brief period in which we did have affirmative action in a more robust sense counted as reparations is also crucial uh, to the argument. Questions? Yes, sir. Um, as uh, growing evidence that uh, within a very short period, women in college are substantially outnumbered men. What role and what impact does that represent for improving racial 
So the question for the panel is, uh, in short order, and I think already it's, it's the case to some extent, uh, women will outnumber men uh, as college students, and what impact will, they ha will that have for racial and gender justice? And anyone can take a stab? Uh, so women already do <laughs> outnumber men at most universities, and men are currently getting affirmative action. Nobody's talking about it publicly very much, but they certainly are getting affirmative action, and uh, I'd certainly talk about it in all of my classes. <laughs> um, I tend to teach uh, courses that have, uh, that have gender in the title, so I tend to get uh, a lot of women in my classes. And this really comes back to the question about, you know, do numbers really make a difference? And, and I think they do, but women have to see themselves in the classroom, again, as women, and as somehow, you know, being able to think about that as an important marker that might affect the way their professors see them and the way other male students see them. And I think in my classes, I, I, that does happen because they suddenly realize that there's not a lot of men in the class. And I had a student the other day actually come up to me and say, I just love this class because there's so many women and they actually talk. You know, so there's that kind of sense of, well, the men aren't going to be super assertive and I can be in here and I can say whatever it is I want to say and it feels like a safe space. And I would really like to hope that more and more that that will happen. At the same time, I certainly don't want uh, men to not be at the university. <laughs> Other comments? Right. So uh, was the question about how the rising number of women would have an impact on issues of race? Um, so I would respond a bit differently to that. I would say, of course, it depends on who those women are and what values they bring to the campus and to the classroom. And I would like to think that there um, is a correlation between um, you know, greater gender diversity um, and more racial sensitivity or greater racial diversity, but I think that um, that's not necessarily the case, and certainly historically, um, that has not necessarily been the case. Uh, there was historically a great deal of tension um, between uh, women and African Americans at every moment where there was an advance for African Americans. There was pushback because of concerns among white women, uh, for instance, that uh, it was a zero-sum game. Um, so I hope that we're at a point in our history where uh, there could be a more hopeful scenario, um, but I'm not sure that that's the case. But certainly having people like Professor Walsh on campus, uh, I think, and, and all of us, uh, should uh, uh, perhaps increase the likelihood that that uh, will have a, a hopeful scenario. Well, I think the only thing I, I would add is to look not only at who's in the classroom, but also who is teaching, mm -hmm. to look at the ranks of the professors and where the women and the scholars of color are located. I mean, we are in a new era in, at the university with a, the first female president, but we also want to think more broadly about where, um, if we look around at UVA, where are, are um, non-white faculty and non-white staff concentrated? Mm -hmm. Where, um, where are women concentrated? And so having more women in the classroom is extraordinary, but the entirety of the, the culture, who's doing the work, um, who's making the decisions, I think needs to be understood holistically. 
We are out of time. I'm sure you are not out of questions, uh, but hopefully we can continue this conversation in the lobby. Uh, everyone will be around signing books. And thank you all for coming. And thank you for our panelists.